Welcome to another edition of Sports with Friends. This is episode 413. Thanks so much for the support of the podcast. Thank you so much for the ratings, the reviews. Again, that's how iTunes markets podcasts. And the, the comments on iTunes have been nice recently. So that's always a positive. Uh, a lot of good feedback on social media from last week. Uh, the film, The League, which uh, covers the Negro Leagues. I saw the film over the weekend. It's great. Executive produced by Questlove. Uh, Sam Pollard was our guest last week, and you can go into the iTunes feed and check that episode out as well. You know, a lot of times on Sports with Friends, what we'll do is we have friends who are reporters, friends who are broadcasters, friends who are athletes. Well, this gentleman is a friend who is not only a reporter, he's not only an author, but he's actually a former co-host of mine. We hosted radio shows together. As a matter of fact, a little known fact in the MLB radio history. On March 1st, 2020, I hosted my first MLB radio show. And my partner at the time was a gentleman by the name of Billy Sample who wasn't signed yet. Here's a little known fact. Was February 25th, my partner was supposed to be Tommy John. And Tommy John, at the last minute, backed out of the whole plan. He got one look at me, and he said, nope, I'm not doing this. And they had to scramble to find a, a partner for me. And eventually, they, they found Billy Sample, who became one of my nearest and dearest friends. But in the interim, we were headed to spring training, and we were going to host our first ever MLB radio show. And they said, you're going to meet this guy. And I was like, who is it? Who is it? Is it Terry Francona? And they said, nope, it's Jonathan Mayo. And I said, who? But that was March uh, March 2001. And now I call him one of my favorite people on the face of the earth. He is the author of a new book. It is titled Smart, Wrong, and Lucky, The Origin Stories of Baseball's Unexpected Stars. Interesting title. It's an interesting book, and he's an interesting guy. Let's welcome Jonathan Mayo to the podcast. Jonathan, do you remember we were sitting outside? We were on some like like bridge table outside hosting this show. You maybe knew me for five minutes. I knew you for four minutes. It was the most like unfamiliar thing. It was this brand new job for me, at least. You had been there for a while. And all I can say was, you could not have been more welcoming and kind. Kind. That's the only thing I could say is kind. You may have talked so much shit about me behind my back. It's totally fine. I probably deserved it. Welcome <laughs> back to the podcast. I, I I don't think I talked too much shit. At least I hope not. Because uh, I probably, you know, I didn't know what I was doing either. You know, I had been there a little while, but uh, I, I hadn't done much in the way of radio. So uh, I think we were... Uh, the blind leading the blind together. That's right. That's exactly what we were doing. Yeah, that's exactly. We fumbled what we our way through. All right, let's talk about the book first, and then we Great. can tell all fun stories and 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 all of that. Um, I kind of want to start this the way I start most authors. You know, we've done four hundred of these. Um, whose impetus was the book? Was this your idea that you pitched to someone, or? Did someone pitch to you this idea of tracking down current and former baseball stars 
and find out how they were scouted and what the scouting reports were on these guys and whether people were right, wrong or indifferent or, or, or whatnot, which came first, the chicken or the egg? Uh, it was it was my idea, um, though I have to probably give a lot of credit to uh, now Giants national cross checker Brian Bridges, uh, who, like many scouts, is a tremendous storyteller. And whenever I would see him, why don't or talk I have to him, you would, on? Then why don't I get him? What's you his number? Have him on. I'll give you his number. He's much more entertaining than I am. And uh, you know, he, whenever I saw him, he would tell these great stories about you know. Scouts tend to like to talk about guys they missed on, right? As much, if not more, than guys that they hit on. And they'll tell the stories of other guys that they hit on. And so it all kind of came from a story he was telling me about Charlie Blackman, who ended up being a chapter in the book. Uh, and it started out as I did an oral history during the pandemic. Uh, so everyone had free time, including Charlie, who was very gracious with his, his time with me. But um, Brian Bridges had drafted Charlie Blackman as a pitcher out of high school. Wow. Uh, You know, Charlie Blackman did not hit until his senior year of college uh, at Georgia Tech. That's the, this whole book is, you know, guys like that. that, That's what this whole book is. This, this whole book is, these are what the scouting reports said at the time. And that's, and then you know what the careers turned into. Right. And of course, all these scouts are too smart. I give them the opportunity every chapter. I, I want, I, didn't make it into every chart, but every interview I did, I said, okay, now's your time. You knew that Charlie Blackman was going to be the best hitter in the national league, you know, or you knew that Jacob DeGrom was going to be the best pitcher on earth. Uh, they're all too smart and been humbled too often. Uh, again, they've missed more often than, than not. And those are the stories they like to tell as well, but having a book with a bunch of pictures that of people, nobody's ever heard of, that's not going to sell. So uh, <laughs> I decided to do the success stories. You know, the later round picks, the Albert Pujols of the world, you know, guys like that. And uh, so this was my idea that I pitched uh, as opposed to, uh, you know, I wrote a book 15 years ago called Facing Clements and was talking to hitters. Yeah. um, I didn't have a podcast then. I would have put you on then. Yeah. Well, I appreciate that. That uh, that goes down as one of the, the worst cases of bad timing in publishing history because yeah, he got pinched for the Mitchell report, right? When it, you wrote it, the book, it, right? At the, it was at the printer when the Mitchell report came out and I was like, oops. Um, but, that whole thing. but that was more an editor. We had an idea and then we cultivated together, but this was, this one was completely my baby and uh, you know, sort of stems from the fact that I spent so much time talking to scouts, you know, on the regular for my, for my day job. You know, a lot of people who are going to listen to this don't know your your whole story. You came to MLB at uh, in 1999. So that's two or even maybe three years before I did. Um, the reason why I bring that up is you were a reporter. Um, to show how old I am? No, no, no. <laughs> I want to go there. <laughs> uh, you said that, not me. <laughs> that's true. Um you you were going along you were you, you covered a team for a while you covered the league for a while and i don't remember the year you i'm, I'm sure you do you know all the years mm-hmm. kind of blend together uh i was there from 2001 to 2008 um you transitioned from a major league reporter to the ultimate minor league reporter and you know we were close but i i don't think i ever had this conversation it's one of the things that i think 
this podcast brings out because you have these kinds of conversations that I don't think at a bar in a hotel you would ever have this conversation. But I always thought it was, you know, if I stay as a major league reporter, I'm one of dozens. And if you go on the broader spectrum of all the writers in, in the major leagues, you are one of hundreds. But if I go to the minors, that's a niche I will own. And I said, wow, what a bold move. Um, Kevin Serwinski covered the minors for a while. Uh, I remember that. I I, mm-hmm. I, I do remember the, the players in this whole thing. Take us through, again, was it your decision? Was it their decision? How did you go from being a major league reporter to covering the minors, which you have now done for two decades? Yeah, so 2003 was the first year that I made that switch. So you're exactly right. Um, so 20 years exactly, and 24 years and change since I've been working for Major League Baseball's website, which is just insane to me. And uh, so, the one thing I didn't do in the body game, I've never, I've never covered a team. I never was a team okay. writer. Um, I, was, you know, I came in as the first staff writer the site had ever hired in '99. We were a staff of about four people. Um, and then in 2001 was when the you know sort of big expansion we brought all the club sites in and i was a national reporter you know in 01 uh in that first year of the big you know expanded site and then i moved to pittsburgh um where i've been since and i was a national reporter in 02 and we had several really really talented national reporters there's only so much you're going to do and i i kind of saw that I wasn't really getting to do a lot uh, of things that I would have liked to have done. And we had other people who were doing it just as well, if not better. And I always liked covering prospects. Uh, You know, I learned from my first year how big the draft already was on the website and had done some draft. You and I hosted the draft for a number of years. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Oh my God. I hate And <laughs> not, not you, no, um, not you. I hate fair them. enough. Fair, oh my god! Yeah, it was. It, it's not. It's not an easy lift. Not even you know. Not even back then, and uh, it certainly hasn't gotten any easier. But uh, I kind of saw that not only was I not getting to do things that were interesting to me, but we had a need. You know, we had we had a minor league like Page, and we had you know an occasional part-timer spend a little time doing stuff, but we never had anyone dedicated to it. And so it was my idea, but also I saw that I was kind of, I wasn't getting squeezed out, but I just, I wasn't getting the opportunities to do, you know, sort of interesting stuff. So it was, it was a kind of a, a good combination of opportunity and need meeting at the same time. And, uh, you know, I had no idea what was going to come of it, you know, but uh, here we are 20 years later and I'm still doing it. And, you know, it's continued to, to grow and grow and grow over the years. I look at it, you know, and they have it in, in all sports. Uh, there were people who, um, there were people who embraced social media faster than others. For example, uh, Adam Schefter, Adam Schefter's not, Adam Schefter's not a better reporter than Peter King is just as an example. He tweeted more. And so so when people joined social media, they said, go to Adam Schefter because you'll get news better, faster that way. He had a niche. 
It was a niche. And there's something that you can carve out. And what you've done is you've carved out this successful career. And when there were layoffs, you had value. And that's, you know, you're seeing it now at ESPN. You're seeing it now at Comcast. You you know, you saw it at MLB back in 08, but you saw it recently too. You've, you've seen what you can offer them is something that they don't have other, they don't have six of you. You know what I mean? So they don't have to trim the fat. So you had a niche. And I just thought it was brilliant then. I never told you that because it probably wasn't cool well, to tell you that then. <laughs> I always thought it was. Uh, well, I appreciate that. I appreciate that, especially since you had you know some inside perspective just from from being part of the company and seeing how things went. Yeah, I think in 2008, um, I don't know if the draft saved my job, but it saved me from having to do something else. Right. Uh, you know, I might have very well become the Pirates beat writer right. if things had gone differently. And keep in mind, in 2008, my kids were seven and four. Right. It would have been not a great time for me to suddenly become a beat writer for the first for the first time. Totally. So, uh, yes, I uh, I've been very uh, sort of clued in to the fact that what I do has helped me continue to yeah. do what I do. Yeah, I remember uh, in two, 2014, I traveled to every New York Mets home and road game. My kids were six and three. And at the end of the year, people said, did you love it? And I said, no, I hated it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I absolutely hated it because I missed so much and I was miserable. Well, you know, it was it was a miserable. Plus, I hated working for the Wilpons, but that that's a, that's a separate podcast. <laughs> but 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 the the point being is that that's an age where as a parent, your priorities change. Your priorities change. I think that you right. and I, when we were 20, we would have gone anywhere. You send yeah. us to Europe to cover I... something in Europe. If you said to me in, in when I'm 25, go cover the Premier League for three years, I would be like, sure, where do I sign? Right. But not no, now. I think, no, I think that's, well, now, now I could. I'm an empty nester now, but well... <laughs> uh, but uh, but I'm too old. Uh, and tired but uh like the idea of doing it now is so foreign to me and you know i tip my cap to the guys to you know the men and women who have been beat writers you know for years while raising a family i you know i traveled always just enough you know if you ask my wife i traveled too much but compared to what a beat writer had to do um it you know it, it it was segmented right and generally knew when it was coming uh, and that was enough. I didn't. I didn't like missing stuff, and uh, you know. So this was sort of a good middle ground. You know, when you work from home, you do need to travel on occasion. Otherwise, sure. you're going to go absolutely crazy. So it was always just the right amount. And you know, the older we get, the less uh, the the thrill of tr- you know the travel doesn't seem so exotic. All right, uh, let's get to the idea. So you have this idea for a book. Um, yeah. How many of the players, um, you know, because we're friends and I didn't go through a publicist, they didn't send me like the screener notes or the the, the, the PDF copy or anything like that. So I'm 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 flying blind here. Um, how nah. many of it is? I should have sent you a copy. That's, that's my okay. Man. <laughs> that's, that's totally fine. Um, how many uh, of the players that you profile? Uh, how many of it is the current players? or the recent stars? Is it Derek Jeter and Alex Rodriguez? You mentioned Albert Pujols. Or is it just 
you know, the Aaron Judge and Ashley Adley Rushman and you know these these young twerps, right? Um, so it's, don't know it's, that that don't know how to swing. It's mostly wow. I like Adley. Rushman you haven't swing. listened to sports with friends recently. Um, uh, I'm a big Adley Rushman fan, so you got to be careful. Uh, no, I mean, and obviously those are all like top guys who are like bigger prospects and didn't fit the mold of this book, but it's, it's mostly guys who are either recently retired or are still, you know, playing, um, but have been around a while, you know, and part of that is I kind of started the project in 2020. So there were a few more guys who were still playing that have sure. since retired, like Lorenzo Kane. Oh, um, good guy. I don't remember That's what a good he, guy. I'd, I'd be interested to hear about his story. Oh, his story is unbelievable. We can get into that. It's maybe my favorite and craziest story. Um, I don't remember when Ian Kinsler retired, uh, but he's in the book. Um, you know, Albert Pujols obviously just retired. Uh, Mookie Betts is probably the the guy who's kind of still in his prime. Um, Charlie Blackman's still playing. Shane Bieber uh, mm-hmm. still playing. Um you know, I start. I start forgetting who who else is in the in the book. I've forgotten who else, but it's just kind of that mix of guys who are like a, sure. have just retired or uh, or are still you know, but have been playing for for quite some time. Because the idea is that they were late around picks, but then they turn into established stars, and you know that that window can close pretty quickly. You know, it seems like there would be you know two separate scouting. Uh, paths that you can take if you're if you're a hitter or you know a position player basically it's how well do you adapt to each different level you know you're you're given a you're given a learning curve uh you go up and you you see how well your hand-eye coordination can adapt to the mechanics that you're learning as you advance in the levels pitching is very different these days uh just three or four weeks ago I told you this off air. We had uh, Derek Lowe on the podcast. Mm-hmm. Had a great career. I loved having Derek Lowe because, like yourself, this is bringing back a lot of memories. Um, right. <laughs> but <laughs> Derek Lowe was saying, uh, and very appropriately, uh, I would go, I would probably get signed, but I wouldn't get promoted because he topped out at 91. And was a sinker baller pitcher. And if anything, you know, right. the book on him was he threw a heavy ball. He induced ground balls and he had a successful career. He was a closer. He w- he led the American League in saves one year and never changed his style. Nowadays, when you talk to scouts, if they don't throw 96 plus, do they just it's not hard. get like, do they just like rip up the note? Like well, what happens? Well, it's tougher. I don't know if it's 96 plus, but yeah, the, the guys throwing 89 to 91 don't get as noticed. Now, I think if it's a guy who's like in that like low 90 range or whatever, and there's some projection and they throw strikes, they get, they'll get drafted and signed, but later, right? Even like Jacob deGrom, when he was drafted, was 88 to 90, 91. Yeah, he 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 hadn't pitched. He was a shortstop, and his junior year of college was the first time he like really pitched at all. 
And they just liked his feel for pitching and his athleticism on the mound. And like no one knew that he was going to end up throwing a hundred. Right. And that's the one thing you might, the only argument I would give Derek Lowe is that in today's world, given his size, he probably would have been drafted and the, the advancements that teams have made in pitching development, they may have been able to coax more velocity out of him. That's, you know, you know, like, like Shane Bieber was another guy, pure command guy. That's why he went in the fourth round instead of the first round. Right. Um, And, and Cleveland has become really, really good. Seattle's another organization that in once on the development side, uh, all the things that they do with strength and conditioning and pitch design and all that stuff, they end up throwing a lot harder over, you know, over the, over the course of time while not, getting rid of what made them interesting. I would love for the scouting industry to be able to get back to looking at guys, you know, who, who know how to who pitch. Know how to pitch. Yeah. Yeah. Who know how to pitch. And so those guys on the mound, those guys will still get drafted later. And then you have to see now what happens. And, you know, to Derek's point about not getting promoted is that, you have to prove yourself at every level. If you're, you know, the first rounders get lots of opportunities for obvious reasons. They're getting, you know, seven figure bonuses now and all that kind of stuff. If you're a sixth round pick and you're throwing 91, you're going to have to prove yourself unless, unless you take off, right? Like, like Shane Bieber did, you know, he, he was not a guy who was a high profile guy. And then it just sort of clicked and he started moving in a hurry. You know, if, if, if things start to click and you can pitch, and you start getting outs at the upper levels, they're going to move you because that old there's never enough pitching adage is very true. More of Sports with Friends in just a moment. But first, we have a special announcement coming up at the beginning of August. Dr. K, Dwight Gooden is coming on the podcast. 1985 NL Young Award winner, New York Met Hall of Famer, four-time All-Star, and the author of the 1996 no-hitter with the New York Yankees. Doc is working with a new company called Imbue CBD. Imbue CBD makes products that actually work and make a difference in the lives of the people and pets who use them. That's right, pets. The founders of Imbue CBD have nearly three decades of experience in the cannabis and healthcare industries and are passionate about utilizing their expertise and know-how to deliver exclusive proprietary products designed to invent designed and envisioned to provide outstanding results. I spoke to Doc about why Imbue CBD is helping him with his continued recovery from addiction. Well, the CDB I'm involved in now, uh, I understand I've been through a lot, obviously, with addiction. So now I know what pain feels like. I know what pain looks like. So anything I can do with that, helping others that's going through it, with the CBD, the stuff I take, you know, it's for it helps me sleep. Uh, my mind's always going, and it just helps me feel better, healthy-wise, have to think better, and everything is good. To see what products they have available and to get 30% off your order, use Doc's code DG16. I don't have to explain why, right? I-M-B-U-E-C-B-D.com and use the code DG16 for 30% off. And don't forget, August 2nd, episode 414 of the podcast. Dwight Gooden, right here on Sports with Friends. Now back to the show. This is going <laughs> to sound so weird, and I'm going to try. That's never so stopped you hard. before. 
I'm going to try so hard not to make this a loaded question. Just ask the question already. I remember being in Citizens Bank Park in 2016, late 2016, and Aaron Seeley was sitting with a – he was a scout, and he was a pitcher with the Mariners when I from my days covering the Mariners. And he uh, was sitting with a bunch of scouts, and he invited me to join them. That's exactly what I love about baseball. That's what right now – that's my favorite thing about baseball. If I'm going to a baseball game, I want to go four hours early and just talk to everybody. And so we were talking and he was explaining how hitters come in with all different kinds of their own mechanics and whatever raw ability they have, talent is talent. But that these coaches now teach this Fakakta launch angle. This is where it's going to sound very loaded. And that they take hitters that have level swings and teach these poor kids to undercut the, the swing, to, to almost like make a golf swing, because it is more important, and this is a quote from one of these scouts, it is more important about the arc in which the bat crosses the body than that the eye makes contact with the ball. And I'm hearing this, and I was just like, oh, my God. And I remember having Jason Stark on the podcast shortly after that, and his argument was they are teaching this. It is not a trend. It is not a trend like you and I used to cover trends in the 2000s. They are teaching generations that, I don't care how many pitch clocks you have. You are, th these these hitters are flailing. I watched a game this weekend. I watched and I saw two strikes, one strike doesn't matter, ahead in the count, behind in the count, they are flailing at the ball. And this is what scouts are seeing? It's a loaded question, but explain this to me, Mr. Minor League Baseball. Yeah, I think you could get sort of stuck in a chicken versus egg kind of argument, um, you know, and uh, the game goes in cycles. So uh, I I don't know if every organization is teaching the same thing. There's clearly a greater emphasis on launch angle and hitting for power that like that. That's you can't question that. So that is being taught a lot. And sometimes it's being taught before they even get to pro ball, um, you know. And so I think what happened is there was a stretch of time where, you know, the two seam fastball and the sinker was, was all the rage. Right. And so having, having that kind of swing, that was an answer to that. And then of course the answer on the pitching side was, well, we're going to start that wasn't a way to beat the, the that, that wasn't a way to beat the shift to not hit a ground ball. Well, that's part of it. Okay, that's part of it. And power, you know, power plays. You know, I, I think the 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 emphasis on data, uh, I'm sure, played a part in it in terms of the thought being that punching a single the other way isn't as effective as hitting a ball over the fence. You know, and you, and that strikeouts are just an out. Um, which is true. Strikeouts are just an out, right? So, you know, I think people just need to live with more strikeouts in the game that's going to happen. But I do think that it's there's been 
sort of back and forth in terms of adjustments. And I do wonder if eventually, um, if teams are continuing to have trouble uh, getting people on base and scoring runs, I guess the only benefit is that there's been an emphasis on seeing pitches and drawing walks uh, in, in addition. So that you're getting people on base for for the the three run homers, like the old Earl Weaver, uh, right? You know, kind of kind of mentality. Got it. Earl Weaver. Uh, I wonder if I would the, love the, to talk to Earl Weaver for five minutes about today's game. Well, you know, there's a there's a a, a writer here, um, John Miller, who's working on an Earl Weaver book, and he's going around talking to like. Uh, big league oh, managers cool. about his impact and stuff like that. So, um, but uh, yeah, so I do wonder if eventually the, it's going to kind of go back. Cause I, I am starting to see some pitchers going back to adding a two seamer back in, um, you know, if, as hitters are starting to adjust to their four seamer up or to give hitters a different look. So, and you know, I think when you see, start seeing the success of some hitters who aren't all launch angle all the time whether people whether it will shift back I, I think the game does go in cycles and we'll have to see whether this is something that is lasting or it's just uh, a a trend as you know as you said for for just now well my my biggest complaint with it i mean i have a lot of complaints because it's boring but the bigger complaint is though the year what was the year was it was it it was before covid when they had all the no hitters it was it was it was like four no hitters in 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 one yeah. year, and I watched two of them, and I just was like, "There's no drama here." Like, I remember watching no hitters. I never saw one live because if I'm at you know, the is if I'm at the ballpark, there's no chance of a no hitter. Um, yeah. You know, I've seen no hitters on TV, and I remember the seventh eighth inning, the drama of it. These guys do not want to get no hit, and what. What bothers me, baseball doesn't bother me. What bothers me is when teams are getting no hit and you're getting into this scenario where that these mechanics are just, that's what we learned and this is what we're being taught. And so they just, it's constant, the, well, I call it flailing because what it looks like is the pitcher is so much smarter than you. That's what it looks like from the outside point of view. Right. It looks like the pitcher is so much smarter than you, and you as the hitter are just being fooled because you're so committed to this, this launch angle, and they're striking you out on easy pitches, and these no-hitters are not getting harder. The only reason why they're getting harder is because the pitchers aren't used to going that deep in games. Aren't allowed to pitch that deep. Yeah. Right. So they you know, so it's so it's a war of attrition, but it's not the the chess match. And like think right. about some of the great no-hitters that you and I covered like during our time together, you would watch these guys. Think about the Mucina almost perfect game. Oh, and how well, those why, hitters but those hitters are doing everything in their power to get on base. And his job as the third time through the lineup is harder because they're watching and they're trying to make contact. Compare right. that game to any right. of the no hitters in the last yeah, five. No, years. that's fair. And I think to your, to your earlier point, you know, I do wonder with the shift being over, whether or not they'll have to readjust. Cause that definitely puts a part. I can't believe you brought up that Mike Messina game. I was at that game. We really, wow. Yeah. 
it, like kind of just by chance, I was still living in New York and I don't even remember. I was like, I'm going to go like, why don't I go to Boston or I was in Boston and then I decided to go. It wasn't like I was covering the game. I'm like, well, if something, you know, whatever happens that's at that game, I'm like, I'm now convinced I will never see a major league no hitter in person. I did see Steven Strasburg throw no hitter in college, but that doesn't, cool. that's not the same thing. but I, uh, but that game, I'm watching Carl Everett of all people break up that perfect game. I'm like, yep. No I'm relation. No relation in case anyone no. was wondering. Um, Seth believes in dinosaurs. Um, and uh, I, I, yeah. So I do wonder, like I, like I said, it's cyclical, right? So the shift is gone. The idea. Um, listen, I used to wonder all the time with the shift. Forget about launch angle. Like, I don't know. Can anyone just lay down a bunt? Like, you have the entire left side of the infield. You don't have to do it all the time, right? David Ortiz well, right. is not going to. That was that was bunting. the argument for years. Yeah, that was like every once in a years. while, just like flick the ball that way. Like, not all the time, just to keep them on, keep them a little more honest, right? But um, I do wonder if now there will be more premium on pure hit tool. Um, and there's a middle ground maybe, you know, in, in terms of launch angle and, and, and the sellout for power. Well, cause everybody, everybody that I've talked to just says they teach it at the minor league level. And, you know, and to your, you know, your point about sort of streaming platforms, I get that, right. It is going to be an, uh, an older, an older subset that are, are going to be shaking their fists at the, at the heavens about it being on Apple TV or whatever. Um, it's a weird thing finding that mix between like, well, that might get younger people, but will it attract smaller audiences and which streaming platforms are you choosing and all that, that sort of thing, you know, but um, that part is smart. I think, you know, baseball's got to do more of that, you know, uh, whether it's Apple TV or Peacock or whatever, because you know <laughs> the amount of people don't even watch TV or have cable or things like that, it's it, it it's it would have been short sighted not to start to try to do that and make deals on in that realm. Well, you know, a perfect example, and I'm not I'm not asking you this as an MLB.com employee or as an author. Um, I'm, I'm just this is these are just facts. Uh, the two teams, the Diamondbacks and the Padres, where um, the, the, their regional sports network has, has, you know, gone bankrupt. They've relinquished the rights, mm-hmm. the media rightly. So I'm not, this is not a criticism of the media. The media has rightly. So talked about how are fans going to see the games, right? So, you know, baseball reacted quickly. Uh, if you're in Phoenix, if you're in San Diego, the cable companies that you have there, uh, you can get the games, uh, otherwise, you can get it on MLB.tv. Hopefully, they release those stupid blackout rules. So, you know, so you know, if you're in Vegas, you can't see eight teams and all, all those things. We've done tons of podcasts on, over the years on on that. But what I heard, and this is wild, is that MLB is using its like it's like reserve fund to pay eighty percent of what the rights fee would have been to both Arizona and San Diego for the 2023 season. That is unsustainable. Right. <laughs> they can't do that again next year. And there's going to be more teams because the AT&T uh, nets, you know, Colorado, Pittsburgh, and Houston 
they're saying we're relinquishing our rights. So there's four, five more. What the reason I'm bringing it up to you is a, that's not sustainable. I don't know what the, the, the solve is. I know in baseball's perfect world, they'd love to have like what major league soccer has where every game in major league soccer is on Apple plus, And there's only one way to find a major league soccer game, whether it's new England revolution or the New York red bulls, or whoever it is, it's on Apple plus the yes network and Nesson and, uh, and mid Atlantic sports network are going to say, screw you. There's no way we're doing that because those networks still make money. So it's right. a civil war amongst, amongst the league. But what's going to happen is you're going to start to see haves and have nots. There's going to be payroll disparity more so than ever before. And what my fear is, is that they're going to, the, the cuts are going to come in scouting and development because there are going to be some teams that are going to become what I'll call no hopers. I, I I use that term in NBA terms. There are teams that are bad. There are teams that are no hopers, right? They're, they're the teams that nobody hears about because the NBA doesn't care about them. In baseball, they usually care about all 30 teams. And at least try to. At, at, at least try to. Yeah. And what I fear is that, you know, it's going to start with San Diego and Arizona. It's going to continue with, with, with Houston, Pittsburgh, Colorado. It's going to be all these teams that don't have television money. Miami's going to lose their television money next. The, the, the way this is all coming, scouting is going to, and scouting is such a vital part of the baseball formulation. It just seems like it's such a vital thing. How concerned are the scouts that you talk to is that how, tenuous is the business side of scouting it's tenuous i don't know that people have connected the regional sports networks issues with that um and they tend to come from different budgets could i see certain ownerships saying all right well we're not making money from that it's going to come from there yeah you know, these I are think... massive these are massive payments that are oh, not no, no. without without question and hopefully they can come to some other con conclusion and then it's going to come down to that individual franchise and the owner and what what they value you know some of those listen you know i live in pittsburgh um they're not making a ton of money from the tv deal that's we have one of the uh, and then this is getting into the weeds and stuff that i honestly don't spend enough time to, to know about but like we all know that the money that the yankees make from their tv contract right. eclipses what the pirates make and that's one of the had been one of the largest issues in terms of uh lack of parity right in the league so i think you know also at issue is the the you know the move towards more and more use of data uh and analytics which i think is very important but should only be one tool and not the only tool mm. Um, and I think there are certain organizations that have already trimmed their scouting staffs considerably. You know, during the COVID year, uh, the draft was only five rounds, uh, but people did a lot of video scouting. Um, and suddenly it was like, oh, well, why can't we do that all the time? Um, would, it be, so would it be pool scouting, meaning like 
like there'd be regional scouts that shoot players and then send it to all 32? Well, that that already happens. You know, the, the Major League Scouting Bureau doesn't really like exist like it used to back, you know, when when we you and I were first working together and it was a huge deal. But they still go out and shoot video. And then there are, um, you know, there are companies like Synergy that you can get video for any any college game or any high school, like over the summer showcase. They, they obviously aren't out doing high school games during the spring, but you can see video of just about anybody. And because of 2020, there was no spring season. Everyone was working off of the summer anyway, so uh, or the previous year. Mm-hmm. And so I think the, you know, the there's some thought, there's been some thought, well, between that and the fact that every team's got a model and an algorithm where you plug all this information in and it spits out whether that player has value, um, the the importance of scouts, unfortunately, has been devalued. And, you know, I think the teams that do it right and can, will continue to do it right is that they do a little bit of both. You know, they they look at the analytics. You can't ignore it. Um, you're doing yourself a disservice. But also going to see a player and how he carries himself and how he plays the game is important. Like, you know, human eye. And uh, there have been too many guys over the years I've been doing this, Seth, who look great in a workout or in a showcase, but they have no feel for playing the game, you know, and you don't know that unless you sit there um, and watch them and get to maybe get to know them more than you would. You know, there are benefits to technology you can do zooms, you know, you can meet with higher ups with teams a lot more readily than you used to be able to. Um, Now at the draft combine guys can come in and meet with as many teams as they want. And I think that's great. But without the foundation of having seen them in person, I, I think it it's you're not getting as full a picture as you possibly can. So that to me is as much of a uh oh, it sounds like in risk, 10 years you have to do a sequel book. A, a risk to well, I mean, one of the beautiful things about the book is like I could I could rinse and repeat, right? right. Because on the positive side, there are always players who are stars from the later rounds. Um, so I could I could keep doing this, but it would be interesting to look at it ten years from now and see how the lens through which they are evaluated has changed. Totally, totally. All right, uh, enough enough business. Um, I worked with you from two thousand one to two thousand eight. The first three years of that were three of the greatest postseasons. I've ever imagined. The first postseason was hmm. uh, Jeter threw uh, uh, Clemens threw at Alex Rodriguez's head. Uh, Jeter had the flip. Uh, Byung Young Kim happened. Uh, Mister November. I mean, the two thousand one postseason had everything. Two thousand two was one of the greatest World Series I've ever seen, and that's when the uh, the Twins and A's played that classic ALCS. Uh, and then 2003, my sister was supposed to get married and I was going to get in trouble for missing game seven. Josh Beckett throws a complete game and beats the Yankees and wins uh, the World Series. It just seemed to me like I, it wasn't just that I was getting to go to the World Series. I was getting to go to some of the best World Series of the last 20 years. Like they were some of the best. I think it's probably both and right. You know, um 
you probably wouldn't think of them as fondly if you had watched them on TV. If if you know, if you're gonna be honest. Well, I guess that's my question to you. Like, is is that what's a what's a World Series? What's a recent World Series that was that you say is as classic? A lot of people say the uh, the Cubs and the Indians. Is that it? That was a pretty good one. It's tough because you know I, I uh, 2001 was the last World Series I was at in person. So they blurred together for me now, especially since half the time I'm like covering the Arizona Fall League. Um, so I don't like I don't I don't remember my institutional memory is terrible anyway. And I remember I remember the- being at in Arizona. I was in the Yankee clubhouse when they were setting up the champagne. Yeah, I was in, hits the double. I, I right. I was in the uh, in the in the tunnel. You know, we're all lining up waiting. And you were watching them with the with the with the with the cart. We're yeah. pushing the cart as fast as they can, and they're going. The bottles are going to fall. The bottles are going to fall. What right, are you doing? Right. And you know, and then uh, and then Mariana Rivera of all the people, you know, right. doesn't 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 get it done. I mean, broken bat single. What are you going to do? But then we all sort of shuffle over to the Diamondbacks while they're scrambling yep. to not just the champagne, the the plastic wrap. That they put up on the on the on the, on the lockers. Yeah. That was insane. That was an absolutely insane. And that was our first World Series as you know advanced media. Yeah. You know, I had covered '99 and 2000, and uh, that was pre like expansion. And I mean, 2000 was cool because like the idea of the Mets and the Yankees playing each other. Like, never thought in a million years I'd see something like that. Um, after hearing stories from my mom about, you know, the, the, she was a New York Giants fan, but, you know, it was the, the Giants occasionally, the Dodgers a lot, and always the Yankees. You know, so it was all the World Series was like always in New York. Um, the, 2000, the 2000 series was um, how I got the gig because in 2000, you know, I always say I owe the existence of my children to one baseball game. It was uh, Mariners Angels on the last day of the regular season. If the Mariners lost, they uh, don't make the playoffs. Mm-hmm. Uh, they won, so they won the wild card. They played the White Sox. I went straight to Chicago, and they covered the White Sox. They beat the White Sox, and then they played the Yankees. And that's when I yep. met Dave Sims. I met Andy Roth. I met Danny G. Danny G. I met all the people with MLB and we had lunch together and we finagled it. So we sat in the press box for one of the games together for that whole AL 2000 ALCS. That's when uh, David justice uh, hits the home run off Arthur Rhodes. And I thought I needed to be with them more because they were talking about expanding. That's what the big thing was. They were going to add a second show and they didn't know I was from New York. And I remember uh, asking my boss in Seattle, you know, the Mariners had just lost. I got this really awkward, uh, awful one-on-one with uh, Alex Rodriguez where he buzzed right. himself. And uh, I remember saying, I'll stay and I'll stay at my parents' house. I said, I said, you won't have to put me up. I'll stay at my parents' house. I could just, just let me stay here and cover this world series because MLB was expanding. And, they were like, there's not a human being in the city of Seattle that gives a crap that the Mets are playing the Yankees. Right. Was right. They were right. And, you know, I, I didn't see it that way then, but I, you know, I understand. And I went back to Seattle and about two months later, I got 
uh, sent back yeah. to New York to, to meet with them. But I'm convinced that I had I not met with them, there's no way they, they, they you know, jobs like that happen because you meet people. Sure. And if the Mariners don't beat the Angels that day, I'm still in Seattle right now. Like, right. No <laughs> it's funny talking about things coming full circle, not only you know, doing this with you, but I uh, I broadcast the Futures game this year ah. with with Dave Sims. Yeah, <laughs> I'd never done a game with him. I mean, talk about a treat. You know, like I had done those very early days great of MLB guy. radio. Great guy, Dave Sims. Oh, one of the best guys and like so generous in the booth too. Like it's yeah. his it's his home turf. Um I don't know. Which that is I've ironic that it's his home turf. He's been there for 15 years. <laughs> right, right. But I met him when I was the Seattle guy and he was New York. Right. Right. Well, I listen, I remember seeing him on, you know, the local Yeah, he used to do the big sports. East television. Yeah. Well, I mean, even like the like the weekend, you know, lo- local New York affiliate sports yeah. uh, report stuff. And uh, and but I'd never been in a booth with him. And listen, he would have had every right to sort of kind of take over. And like, this is my show. And, uh, you know, he I, he laid out so often. So it was me and Yonder Alonzo in the booth and he let us talk about the players and it was great. Uh, and so getting a chance to work with him in that setting was just, it, you know, every time you think you've done everything there is to do, you, you get, you get that a new, a new highlight. And that definitely was one. Well, you know, look, if there's one thing that people will take away from this podcast is that uh launch angle sucks. And, um, <laughs> that's the takeaway. <laughs> just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> just, kidding. Just, kidding. just joking. Just joking. No, no uh, the, the relationships that you make, uh, in baseball um that's what this sport has has meant to me congratulations on the book uh again the the link to the book will be in the show notes again it's called smart wrong and lucky the origin stories of baseball's unexpected stars um that's it's a great idea it's just a (laughs) unique idea and it's an idea only you could come up with because you had all this information and you were like wait a second i could turn this all into a book uh, I'm sure you worked, uh, you know, long nights and, 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 you know, long days on it. And uh, it's good to see the fruits of your labor. I hope everybody who listens to this podcast goes and buys the book. Uh, that would be even beneficial because then more authors would come on. There you go. <laughs> and, you know, you're talking about relationships, right? That this book is based on the relationships that I have with, you know, with sure. scouts and uh, even the ones who I didn't know at the start of this project, I knew someone who knew them and that helped sort of uh, make that connection. And then I have, you know, relationships with them. And every year I'm adding more and more, you know, scouts to my list of people that I talk to. We, we do for the draft, you know, every year. And without those relationships, I never could write this book. All right. I'm going to put you on the spot as we wrap this up. Uh, so I live in a, a, a suburb of uh, New Jersey. Uh, called Milburn and uh, they had their high school senior Uh baseball star that my daughter is gaga about Steven Uh, Echeverria Steven Echeverria yep lives uh, right around the corner from here all right should I be getting this kid on my podcast uh, I mean, at some point, yeah. And I think he just signed for like $3 million. So um, way above slot. I'll know that. So here, you know, this is key to what we were sort of talking about before about pitching. Yep. 
this is a guy who knows how to pitch and is projectable. It's like he checks off all the boxes. The stuff that ticked up this spring some, but he's still not a guy known for throwing 100. I mean, I think he was touching 96, 97 at times, but mm-hmm. there's more in the tank, and he knows how to pitch. So he, he's re, he really is interesting to me. I, I I wasn't sure if he would get paid, you know, to to not go on to college, but he did. Um, I'm interested to see what he can become because he's got like a, as they say, the sort of starting pitcher starter kit, um, and which doesn't always come with command included, right? But he he's got you know, feel for, for a full repertoire of pitches and can throw strikes. And if he continues to throw harder, there's a chance he could develop into, into a really special pitcher. Yeah. It seems like a, seems like a big deal. They, uh, I know they, uh, they let the kids out early so that the, they could attend the baseball game where he was pitching. And uh, yeah. my daughter had a test moved. She's like, I love Steven Echeverry. Yeah. Right. He's a he's a hero now. <laughs> Forget what he does on the mound. I got a test move. That's better. <laughs> Jonathan, I could do this with you all day, man. Yes, Thanks sir. so much for uh for coming on the podcast. Congrats on the book. Congrats on all your success. And uh let's not wait four hundred more episodes to have you back. I'm a little, you know, salty that you took you this long to invite me, but it's all good. Uh, you know. I gotta say, probably every fifth podcast the guest says that. So. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad. I'm glad we got this done before we retired. So that's right. <laughs> before we die, this is good. All right. <laughs> Thanks, man. Jonathan Mayo, right here on Sports with Friends. Okay. Next week, former Cy Young Award winner, New York Met icon, knew that magical no hitter for the Yankees in 1996. Dwight Gooden joins us on the podcast next week. And then MLB researcher Sarah Langs joins me. Uh, She, of course, this fantastic reporter and advocate for Major League Baseball, also afflicted with ALS. We're going to have a very serious conversation about that. Then we'll get into some other sports. We'll talk about some football. We'll preview the NFL. We're also going to preview the Premier League. So a lot going on here on the podcast. Thanks for all the support. We'll see you next week. If you want me to stay, I'll be around today to be available for you to see. I'm about to go, and then you'll know for me to stay. I got to be me. You'll never be in doubt. That's what it's all about. You can't take me for granted and smile. Come on,